Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is April the 30th, 2018. This is episode 2208 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Monday since the Listener Feedback Show, and I am back from the Living Free in Tennessee Homesteading Workshop with Nicole Sauce. Had a great time with a bunch of uh, TSP folks and her folks up there. We had a, uh, a really good event. Myself and uh, my buddy David from Biltong for Breakfast, we built uh, uh, Miss Nicole a pretty awesome aquaponic system with some assistance by some of the other attendees, including uh, Tactical Redneck and uh, Triple Curic. And it was really nice to have those folks help us out and everybody else that kind of gave, pitched in on that project. Thank you for it. Uh, for once, I have come back from a workshop, a major travel event, something like that, and my voice is not completely blown out, and that's a good thing. It's not in uh, 100% top-end shape, but it's pretty good. That means we can get on with our, our regularly scheduled programming after a week of rewinds. What do I have up for you today from the feedback session? We have uh, what is most likely to occur on the Korean Peninsula with uh, what looks like very good news. Next, I have a question on dealing with carcasses and bones on the homestead. A question about extra bacon grease. Yeah, I, I, I pause it for There's no such thing as extra bacon, right? Uh, but extra bacon grease. You have more bacon grease than you can use. What can you do with that? I have a few ideas, but I'd uh, love to hear some of yours. Uh, then there's a guy named Drew Cloud. He's an independent journalist. He has been quoted in major news all over the world. Specifically, he focuses on student loan debt. And I mean like major newspapers and stuff. I've quoted this guy. He's given uh, email interviews and things like that. The uh, the problem, there, there is no Drew Cloud. Nope. Doesn't exist. He is a fake entity for a fake news source to uh, steer people toward uh, the people that own that site's uh, method of refinancing student loans. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about that in a bit, too. Uh, we have a, somebody asking a question, what if we didn't have the First Amendment, and an article that goes with it that I'll be honest with you. If you read the article from end to end, you will literally be stupider for having done it. I, I perused it enough to get the general feel of it, and I could feel my IQ dropping as I read. Uh, so I've taken that bullet for you, but I'll talk about it a little bit. You can read the whole thing if you want, but I have warned you, your IQ is at stake. Three quick questions about making me... Uh, question on small batch ciders. I'll give you the good and the bad on that. And designing a cover crop seed mix. Why you don't need my recipe, and I don't really exactly have one. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. They are my go-to source for everything herbal. They're a real company with real people that really care about you, and if you call them, that real person will answer the phone right here in the United States, specifically in Utah, and help you out with any of your orders or things like that. You won't be uh, redirected to some guy named uh, Bill or Tom or Jack in you know Bangalore, India, or something like that. Uh, they do have everything that you can imagine for your herbal needs, from uh, individual raw herbs, components like beeswax and menthol crystals for making herbal preparations, or pre-prepared herbal preparations for you. They have a goal to put an herbalist in every house in America, 
It's a pretty noble goal. And they support the show at a very high level, not only being a sponsor now for going on eight years, but uh, Western Botanicals also does give away their premium membership to MSB members. You can learn more in the benefits section of the MSB if you are an MSB member. Next up today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right in their name. Their name will take you right to their website at readymaderesources.com where you'll find, guess what, all the resources you need for your prepping. Ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click and buy with great cost, a great price, great customer service, and great availability. Of, and I said when I said everything, availability of everything. If you can think of it for your prepping needs, from tactical to practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between, you'll find it at readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 122 AD is what we are up to, and we have traveling to Spain and Africa. Hadrian, of course, is the relatively new emperor at this time. During his continuing journey around the empire, Hadrian makes a stop during the winter in his homeland of Hispania. Spending the winter and relaxing and hunting, he travels to Africa for the spring, where he inspects the African provinces, and after a recent revolt, begins construction on more walls. The desert nomads had to pass into Roman territory during their annual migration, and these fortifications were used to count and monitor the tribal populations like Britain and Germania. <clears throat> My take by David Verne. Divide et impura, divide and rule, became the go-to policy for the Roman Empire when attempting to control lands beyond the empire's borders. And the Germanic tribes are a great example of this. The Romans couldn't rule the Germans militarily, but they succeeded at dominating them economically and diplomatically. Roman goods were more numerous, cheaper, and better made than German goods, and the Romans were generous to tribes that befriended them. The Romans would support rulers that were pliable or agreeable to Roman dominance, and would make sure that alliances were nipped in the bud before the tribes could oppose Rome and their allies. Really? Do you, do you see anything similar to how the United States controls most of the known world today? We don't... We don't really divide them and take a census type of the trade. And our goods are generally not cheaper than the rest of the world. We're the largest consumer, and we produce the most powerful military apparatuses in the world. And we have a lot of both hard and soft power. So think about that when I say, say the Romans couldn't rule the Germans militarily, but they succeeded at dominating them economically and diplomatically. Um, the Romans were generous to tribes who befriended them. The Romans would support rulers who were pliable or agreeable to Roman dominance. And some people wonder why you call the United States an empire today. Well, they're not militarily enforcing the well, sort of, kind of, in some places. But overall, they're not really doing that, are they? When we study history, we don't just learn to avoid the mistakes of the past We learn to recognize the patterns of the past, and that's what I'm talking about when I often say history doesn't often repeat, always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And that's what you see here, a rhyming of history. Some of the dynamics have changed, but the people that run this country understand these dynamics very, very well. And what they have set about to do in the world is use our soft power to exert our will throughout as much of the world as possible. Just my thoughts, and uh, I think that uh, that pattern recognition there really kind of backs up my opinion on that matter. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main topic of today's show, your feedback for us. Remember, to be on a show like this, send an email to jack at com. Again, jack at com with TSPC in the subject line. 
and uh, send me your question or make your point. Give me a link to an article, whatever it is. And remember, um, please give me your point or your question in one or two sentences. Hit the return key a couple times and then give me details. It helps with my uh, screening process and may get you on the show more likely than not. Anyway, first question comes from Mike in Kentucky. He said, what is the real story behind the situation in the Korean Peninsula? Personally, I find the whole thing to be, quote, too good to be true, end quote. Will the Korean War be officially over, or what is really going on? Thanks, Mike from Kentucky. Well, I, I actually think we are going to see amazing progress in Korea. And I, I think it's because it's in Kim Jong-un's best interest. And I think that he's in a position where it's the easiest way to move forward. And I think he has enough cover to be able to do so and, and look like a hero doing it. And so people generally do what's in their best interest. And when they don't do what's in their best interest, it's either because they've become irrational and erratic and illogical, which we always try to paint foreign leaders to be. Uh, and uh, understand, somebody can be a ruthless, vindictive bastard and still be logical and rational in how they carry that out. But we, 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 we always want to take it further with our villainization of other cultures. With they're also they're crazy. He's crazy. He's nuts. He's actually a pretty smart guy from the standpoint of being a fairly shrewd negotiator and understanding what he can and can't get away with. Now, remember, I'm the guy that said when all this crazy nonsense has been going on over the years, we're not going to have nuclear war with North Korea. We're not going to have war with North Korea. It's not going to happen, period, the end, infinity. Even while many people in alternative media kept ramping it up, and then the mainstream media ramped it up. Because, again, I'm back to people do what's in their own best self-interest. So we have to ask ourselves, what are the things that have changed this time around that make it in Kim Jong-un's best interest to go ahead and kind of come to a reasonable sort of negotiations table with the United States and U.S. allies. And there's a few things that have changed. Number one, you got to give credit where it's due even if you hate the guy, and that's Donald Trump. Donald Trump put more pressure on North Korea than has ever been exerted on North Korea, ever, by any president in the past. Uh, he really put the stranglehold on importation of goods, services, economics, etc. to North Korea. On top of it, North Korea is once again, this has happened many times, dealing with one of the worst droughts um, in, in their history. And uh, it's pretty much worse than it's been at any time in recent history, all while we have these incredible sanctions bearing down on them. So that that's different in that it comes along with the sanctions and the high level of sanctions. The other thing that's different is this is the first real push ever made by the United States to get something to happen under Kim Jong-un. Uh, the Obama administration was weak in Korea. The Bush administration was weak in Korea. Um, nobody's been tough with this guy. I think he actually wants his country to do better. I know that's a crazy thing that the guy running a country, even a dictator, would want his country to do better. So you have to ask yourself, what possible path forward is there for North Korea right now to do better? And how beneficial would it be to have even reasonable relations with the South and an end to a ridiculously long armistice uh, ceasefire, call it what you will, and actually have a final peace treaty. 
And it would be incredibly beneficial. And I don't see any other way for North Korea to really get more of what North Korea wants, which is more stuff, more food, etc. The the go-to for a Korean government has been, for for North Korean government, for a very long time has been this. You, you, you push and you prod and you yell and you scream and you shake and you rattle and you roll. And you get the United States and other countries to give you aid, generally in the form of food during these droughts. Food comes in, the Korean government receives the food, repackages it with their label on it, so it looks to the people of Korea, like it, North Korea like it came from the government, not from the outside world, and distributes it. And this means that every time the people of this country end up near starving to death, it's their government, it's their supreme leader that saves them. Well, guess what? This time, it's not coming. This time it's not coming. That foreign aid isn't coming without some level of conditioning. So what what happens in North Korea right now if Kim Jong-un says, nope, I'm not doing it, I'm not moving forward, I'm not negotiating, I'm not having this, I'm going to stay in my little hermit kingdom, I'm going to keep launching off you know, rockets that really are not going to take a nuclear weapon anywhere because we don't have the resources to produce any significant nuclear arsenal whatsoever, and they probably don't even have real nuclear weapons to begin with of the kind that can actually do damage to us here in the United States. I'm serious. I have it on some pretty good authority. They don't really have true nuclear capability. It's just a saber-rattle show for their own people to keep them under their thumb. What happens when people become so hungry and so starved, including the enforcers of your will, your military, and are watching their own people starve? Don't you think that sooner or later, even people as under the thumb as North Korea will eventually say, You know what? The hell with this. And you end up losing your regime and probably being drugged through the street and having your head put on a pike. And God knows what good or bad comes from that. Because you think, well, it can't be a worse government. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a lot of people thought that over the years. So I think that the, 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 the Kim Jong-un regime is up against a wall, and they only have one good play. Now, to really understand why it's likely that they'll make that play and, and, and do it in genuine, you have to ask yourself, how much, how much good is it for them to do so? Now, we have all kinds of nations that we have okay relationships with to very good relationships with and everything in between where they have a ruler that never goes away, that, that is in there for life in various different ways, whether it is through a monarchy, whether it's through a pseudo-democracy, uh, whether it's through a, a true imperial system. We deal with people as long as they deal with us, just like the history segment. If they don't get in our way and cause us problems, we're favorable to their leaders, even if they do horrible things to their own people, like China. Okay? Got it? It's not like, oh, we don't... How about Saudi Arabia? The place where you can be killed for being gay, you can be killed for stopping being Islamic, so you decide, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore. It's called apostasism. You can be killed for that. A woman can be beaten for wearing the wrong clothing. We have great relationships with them. So don't, this bullshit that we don't, you know, we don't have good relationships with countries that abuse the shit out of their people, and that would really be what would prevent us from having good relations with North Korea is just bullshit. That's the bullshit here. We've had a problem with North Korea because they don't bend to our will and because they're an obstacle to what we want in the world. 
So if they do drop that, even if they're not our best buddies, then if we're favorable to them, how fast does the North Korean economy boom? How fast, if, we, if, if trade is opened up, does everything get better in North Korea? And the answer is really fast. If, if North Korea moves 10% in the direction domestically with how they manage their society toward the way South Korea is, how much better does it get there? Now, if you're Kim Jong-un and you do that, and you can stand up and say, I have ended the war, And even though you're not going to get there, you can say, I've put us on the path to reunification. The President of the United States came and met with me. I stood up and I launched our rockets and I threatened them. And I brought them to the table, which will be the domestic message. And it gets better for the average North Korean who is already brainwashed to believe that their supreme leader is some sort of godchild then how much does he solidify his position as the leader of North Korea? And the answer is a great deal. And you can always say those rascals are still out there. We need to be vigilant, trust but verify, etc. I think we're on the way to a complete de-escalation of potential hostilities on the Korean Peninsula. And therefore, you'll hear saber-rattling from China because we need to have an enemy over there. Uh, we'll still get along with them, but you'll hear a lot more about, oh, they're building islands in the ocean, blah, 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 blah. In the end, the nations of this world do not want to go to war with any other nation that can actually put up a fight against them. If you've noticed the wars that have been fought since the Korean War, have been superpowers against lesser powers, one way, shape, form, or another. And the only thing that kind of was the hybrid between that was the Vietnamese Vietnam conflict, which eventually we lost. And you don't let anybody tell you we didn't lose the Vietnam conflict. We did. The goal was to maintain a separate, independent South Vietnam, which eventually fell. You can blame Democrats in Congress. You can blame the media. You can blame whatever. But in the end, we failed. And since then, there's been no wars anywhere in the world where it wasn't a complete just trouncing. Because Russia had their own version of, uh, of Vietnam and Afghanistan. We kind of have that today. But in the end, you still are at a point where you might not get exactly what you want out of it, but your cities don't get blown up. Your buildings don't get bombs dropped on. And Korea doesn't want that. Japan doesn't want that. Russia doesn't want that. We don't want that. Canadians don't want that. France doesn't want that. Germany doesn't want that. You see how this works. All the big kids have figured out, you know, <clears throat> if we go to war, it's, it's, it's not going to be good for either party at all. It will never work out in our best interest of the people in power for any of the big kids to fight anymore. Well, If you want to play with the big kids in this world today, then you have to play their game their way. You can even choose a side. You can even be Russia. You can be China. But you got to stop acting like you're going to go provoke the fight with the other big kids. Well, North Korea wants to be one of the big kids. Will they succeed? I don't know. The truth is... If they actually open up trade, they open up relations, they change their tactics, they, they, they do denuclearize, 
the United States isn't going to roll in and invade them. It's not going to happen. And Kim Jong-un knows this. Like, it's not like he's going to go, okay, we're going to do that and everything will be, and just, oh, okay, well, we're going to just uh, roll in and take over now and reunify the peninsula. That's not going to happen. Because China, that's why. Because China. So, with that being the case, they actually have the potential to become a major economic superpower very, very quickly. And the world has changed since the Korean conflict, where superpower was me measured by the military force that you had. Today's superpower is far more measured by economics. And the main thing the United States uses to exert power over other countries is not our military. It's economic power, often called soft power, but it's actually a pretty big stick. It's pretty damn hard when it whacks you in the head. That's where I think we are. I know people will think I'm crazy, but watch it progress. Now, I would not be doing justice to Donald Trump if I didn't at least acknowledge, again, his role in this and his administration's role in this and point something out. Had Hillary Clinton won the presidency, not only would we hear her shrieking voice every day, if somehow she had managed to end up in the same place he is with, with the Korean Peninsula right now, and I don't think she would, because I think she would have been weak on the Korean issue, and I don't think we would have brought Kim Jong-un to the table. I don't think we would have brought him there both with our own force exerted, plus the ability for himself to exercise cover domestically for his own, his own uses. And Trump is a very good negotiator. But had, had Hillary Clinton somehow fumbled her ass into this, you would hear this is the number one lead story on the news every day until something bigger happened. Every time they showed Hillary Clinton, they'd have some graphics guy tuning a little bit of a golden glow around her, and you would hear this. Constantly you would hear this. This would be the soundbite. What no man was able to do in over 60 years. A woman has finally done peace on the Korean Peninsula, an end to a decades-long ceasefire. That's what you would hear, and, and, and the continuous reverberations of that. But since it's Trump, well, you know, it's uh, maybe, and I'm not so sure about that, and whatever. Well, the South Korean president, uh, President Moon, said that Donald Trump deserves the Nobel Prize for this. It's a pretty high praise from someone that probably has a better view of it than MSNBC, CBS, uh, or Fox News. In some ways, this is the biggest story in the past 30 years. It really is. Especially if it goes the way it looks like that it's going to go, and it, I, I think it's going to. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see because they, the, the media is covering it. They can't ignore this. It's too big. But it's interesting to see how they handle it when it all shakes out. Next up, uh, John in Arkansas says, uh, how do you handle bone and carcass disposal on the homestead? Details, we have pigs, chickens, ducks, and fish in our homestead. After harvesting something, I'm not always sure what to do with the entrails, feathers, bones, etc. Big jobs go to the trash so I don't overload the small compost pile. And I have a lot of small carcasses to get fed to the pigs, but I try to avoid feeding pig to pigs. Uh, is it ever appropriate to throw a carcass in the one-quarter-acre pond for the catfish and turtles? Is there an easy way to create bone meal for the garden other uses? Thanks, John in Arkansas. Um, about the only thing I would throw in the pond would generally be, you know, the guts of the smaller animals. That that really probably be okay, as long as it's a couple, three, not like a bucket full. Uh, and and uh, fish, 
the uh, the fish uh, remains. Like if you're filleting your fish and you have that bony structure there, I mean catfish and turtles, etc., will, will eat that up pretty good. Uh, if you have too many turtles in your pond, I actually think it's time to bring the 22 out, honestly, because they uh, are not useful in large numbers, and they generally overpopulate small ponds like a quarter acre. But I wouldn't make that my main uh, go-to. You said small compost pile, and I get that. If you have a large compost pile, you can actually compost large animal carcasses. Uh, and if you do a hot compost, it'll burn and incinerate bone. Uh, we uh, we actually composted a, a cow that died of a, of a problem uh, in West Virginia that was such that we were not comfortable eating it. We had a very large compost pile somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, four square meters, and uh, we composted a cow, and there was almost nothing left of it when it was all said and done with, with a hot compost. Uh, but it's probably not the best thing for you. All your meat, if you'll develop a black soldier fly colony, they will, they will consume meat and, and, and all of that type of waste so quickly you won't believe it and there won't be any stink. Bone, you know, there's a limit to how much you can get rid of that way. But if you're letting them take that down, then you have bone. Bone meal, you know, it's 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 difficult to grind bones. So you're probably not going to do well with that. Um, but those are kind of the approaches I would take. When I have more than I can deal with here, what we generally do with it is I throw it in a garbage bag. I throw it in a deep freezer. And on trash night, I throw it in the garbage can so it's still frozen solid in the morning when the garbage guy takes it away and there's no stink flies, etc. And that's what I do because it's easy, it's convenient. And you're right, when you get to a certain quantity of it, it's, uh, it's probably not easy to, uh, to deal with any other way. I, I am totally down with feeding everything except pig to pigs. I, I get why you want, want to feed pigs themselves. It certainly increases the risk of things like trichinosis. Uh, though trichinosis is killed, if you get meat temperature to 138 to 142 degrees uh, for more than about 15 to 20 minutes, uh, you don't have a trichinosis r uh, risk anymore. You do not have to cook the shit out of pork uh, to mitigate uh, trichinosis risk. Uh, I think the, the, the gold standard number uh, for any real period of time is 146 degrees, which is still a pretty juicy cut of pork especially if you take a little bit of your time in getting to that temperature. Uh, so it, I guess it could be done, but I, I don't know. I kind of feel weird about it too, man. I get you. I don't really want to be feeding pigs bacon. It just doesn't seem like a good idea to me as a whole. Um, and that's all I got. Anybody that's got anything else, please uh, add them to the show notes today. What are the ways you deal with your carcasses and entrails and stuff on your homestead? Um, next up comes from John. John says, what do you do with maybe a quart or two of bacon grease you save from cooking bacon? Well, you use it to cook more, but no, John continues. We cook bacon almost every day. I save the grease to use it here. Uh, they're in recipes like potatoes, almost any veggie I fry, but there's no way I can keep up with the supply. I'd hate to waste the yummy goodness. I thought, oh, confit, but then I read that it's too rich for that unless cut with another fat like olive oil, etc., before experimenting with my luscious nectar, I thought I'd ask you what to do, John, in Blackhawk, Colorado. Well, John, you know, I'm just going to say it. You sound like my kind of a guy. I'm uh, a pretty big fan of bacon and bacon grease. I eat a lot of bacon, but you got me beating the bacon front, man. You, t I don't have more bacon grease than I can use. Um, I don't know if I can really help here because most of what I can think of to do with bacon is cooking. 
And it sounds like you're already using it as much as you can. I'll give you a couple of things you might not have thought of. One that will use up quite a bit of it. How about mayo? Yeah, mayonnaise or aioli. Aioli is just simply a flavored mayonnaise. Believe it or not, bacon grease used as the fat component and mayonnaise works really, really good. And you can either use a 50-50 ratio, meaning bringing in another oil with it, or there are recipes that call for straight bacon grease. So that might be one you want to check out. There's also bacon pancakes. Now, there's bacon pancakes where you just make pancakes, and instead of putting oil in the batter, or if you know some, batter, some batters don't have oil, you use bacon grease in the pancake batter, and then you use bacon grease in the pan when you fry the pancakes. And of course, I mean bacon grease soaked pancakes. That tastes good, right? But I know what you're thinking. The reason I eat so much bacon jack is because I'm primal paleo. How about primal bacon pancakes? These are made with almond flour and eggs and some other things and lots of bacon grease including the use of some gelatin. And even though you think gelatin is like gelatin, it doesn't really change the texture. It acts more as a binding agent here, and it's good for your joints, which I think bacon grease is probably too, even though some people think I'm crazy for that. Um, but that would be another way you could use it. And then I was thinking, well, what's a non-food way? Well, you need fat and soap. And I've, I found an article on making soap from bacon fat. Turns out it is a thing. There's a way to clean the bacon grease so that it comes out a lot cleaner. The article I found sounded like the bacon soap still had a smell the guy wasn't really fond of. But he had a lot of bacon grease sitting around at room temperature for a very long time, and it may have been rancid, so it might be something you want to look into. It also talks about how to clean the bacon grease by boiling it and letting it sit till it hardens and pulling it out of the container and getting progressively cleaner and progressively harder. Uh, the individual that he got the instructions from said to add a little bit of salt each time. After trying it multiple ways, he figured out that doing it with a little bit of salt the first boil only worked out really well. I'm thinking using this alone may enhance the uses of bacon grease because you end up with a very clean, very firm product, a lot more like lard than it is like conventional bacon grease that we think of. So that might be something to look at and see where it takes you from there. Another thing you could do is, I hate to say this, I really do, but you could use bacon grease to make fire starters. Um, if you take a egg carton and you basically put a good-sized pinch of dryer lint in there and spoon some bacon grease on it that's been heated up and then put another lump of it in, uh, the lint in there and do that until you have kind of a layered lump of bacon grease-infused dryer lint, they'll start a fire just about anywhere. Um, I, you know, I don't think you could get rid of gallons and gallons of bacon grease, but if after all this time you're only two quarts ahead of what you can use in your other uses, you know, maybe that's a good supply of fire starters a year. I, I kind of hate to think of bacon grease being used to start a fire instead of being used to fry something that goes in my belly. Uh, but that's about all I got. If there's anybody else who can come up with anything else that might help John with his abundance of bacon grease. Please uh, comment in today's show notes and uh, uh, let them know and let me know. And if I see something really cool, I will include it on a future episode. So next up, um, taking fake news to new levels. Uh, this comes from Jason in PA. Jason says, Drew Cloud is a well-known expert on student loans. One problem, he's not real. And this article is in Chronicle.com. Let me read the first half of it to you, and then I'll read you the lame-ass explanation offered by the student loan report, who you'll find out who that is here in just a second. Drew Cloud 
is everywhere. The self-described journalist who specializes in student loan debt has been quoted in major news outlets, including the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, and CNBC. You know, real news. And is a fixture in the smaller, specialized blogosphere of student debt. He always has got new data featuring irresistible twists. One in five students use extra money from their student loans to buy digital currencies. Um, nearly 8% of students would move to North Korea to free themselves of their debt. 27% would contract the Zika virus just to live debt-free. All of those surveys came from Cloud's website, The Student Loan Report. Drew Cloud's story was simple. He founded the website as an independent, authoritative news outlet covering all things student loans after he had difficulty finding the most recent student loan news and information all in one place. He became ubiquitous on that topic, but he's a fiction, an invention of the student loan refinancing company. And you can read all you want about that going forward. I have a link in the show notes to you. But I figured I would check out studentloans.net, which is the student loan report, see what's going on over there, since apparently they scrubbed all his bylines and every mention of him, and he just disappeared after the Chronicle started researching this and started to kind of come up with the truth about it. Well, now they have a letter. Don't they always, when they get caught like this? Here's what it says. Hello, my name is Nate Matheson. And my company runs the Student Loan Report. We created the Student Loan Report in 2016 as a source for news on the student loan industry, financial aid, and scholarships. At the time, we were building a marketplace for student loans, LEND, E-D-U, and felt we could contribute to the conversation, especially because each of us had a deep and personal experience finding student loans from trustworthy lenders. Personally, I graduated from college with over $50,000 in student loan debt, Today, I'm still working to repay the majority of that debt. As we prepared to launch the student loan report, we debated who should author it. We felt it was really a blend of all our personal experiences and perspectives that would create the best source material. So we created a pen name of Drew Cloud and conceived of a background that we felt personified a lot of the... I can't read it anymore. I, the level of bullshit. I mean, and there's like... Eight more paragraphs of this bullshit, you know? And it ends with, We are deeply sorry for any confusion or frustration that our readers may feel. Please reach out to us at hello at studentloans.net with any questions or concerns about past content. Oh, my God. Grade A premium. Super de mer de toro. What is super de mierda de toro? Bullshit soup. This is bullshit soup at a high level. And these people have been quoted by major news outlets. This guy, he doesn't exist. They created it out of thin air. This site becomes one of the biggest sites on the Internet. In just a couple of years, it ends up being quoted by major news outlets. They didn't understand what was going on here either. Bullshit. What's going on here? This is typical. This is typical. This is nothing new. When I went to work a long time ago for a company called Microtest that eventually got absorbed by Fluke Networks, there was a website called Cabletesting.com. And at Cabletesting.com, you can learn all about testing cables. The thing was, the company that I worked for, Microtest, owned it. 
and just didn't say they owned it. But whenever they talked about the best testers, they always ended up being microtest testers until Fluke bought us, and then like magic, it was the Fluke testers that already seemed to appear all over the site. I think they since got away from that, probably because somewhere along the line, they also got caught. Yeah, if you check out cabletesting.com, you'll see that the site simply redirects to the Fluke Network's website. And so all I'm going to say is whenever you read anything online by an independent third-party blog, any of this shit, assume it's bullshit. And, and, and then look at it for what value it may have and where it might be right. There's another lesson here. When I started the Survival Podcast all the way back in 2008... People thought I was crazy to give out my real name, to say who I really was, to tell people where I really live, because the zombies are going to come in the apocalypse, blah, 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 blah. And there's a lot of people in my space. Uh, some of them are good friends. I like them. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying it's a risk. Because they don't use their real names. They hide who they are. They use fake names, pseudonyms. But at least they actually, there is a person on the other side, and they exist. I advise anybody out there today building a real persona online to be who they really are. I don't even have a problem with a different name. Let's say you change your last name just so you're not harassed and bothered. That's fine. But don't be fake. Don't make your online personality different than your offline personality. Because the risk there is then that sooner or later someone will find a version of that offline personality that doesn't match the online one and destroy everything that you work to build. You know, if somebody were to find a video somewhere of me telling a bunch of people that they're a bunch of stupid ass clowns and that they're morons and they should pull their head out of their fourth point of contact or worse, and they put it out and said to my followers, look what Jack did, all of you guys would go, well, yeah. Look, Jack says cuss words. Well, no shit. That's what he does online. And I think you'll see that the most successful online personalities today are very true to themselves and who they are. And you will generally find that if you get the chance to meet them, they're not much different than they appear. Sometimes people refer to us as always on. Always on. In other words, you know, they're always in character. And that's difficult if you're actually on. It's very easy if it's who you really are. And I think that, again, if you're looking to build a reputation online, build a blog, build a YouTube channel, build an Instagram channel, build anything that's going to be based on a personality, let it be your real personality and find the people that match it. Because the funny thing, there's people out there that would think, well, I could never build a following with my personality because I'm not charismatic like fill in the blank. Char charisma is about the ability to influence people and make them want to have an affinity with you. And the funny thing is, when you can reach everybody that's out there, all the billions of people in the world, there's always some people that will have an affinity with you if you're any good at what you do. Well, be yourself. Now, I'm not saying you might not get a little bit of a boost. You know, I can't say that you know when you sit down in front of a microphone, you have complete freedom to say what you want, that maybe you don't get a little bit amped up and a little bit beyond yourself at times, a little bit carried away out of yourself at times. But in the end, be true to who you are. Uh, this is a perfect example of not only not being true to who you are, but being a bald-faced frickin' liar, fake news source that the other fake news sources ran with. It doesn't surprise me in the least bit. It also shows you how desperate the student loan industry really is.
Next up, John in Park has sent me the following. Good article to share. What if we didn't have the First Amendment? Would hate speech laws curb extremism? Would journalists go to jail? The First Amendment is the heart of American society, but other countries function without its broad protections. Uh, this is on Apple News, and I'm not going to read it to you. And the reason I'm not going to read it to you is, as I said during my intro, it will make your IQ go down. Um, is it that bad? Yeah. If you, I think if you really read this as though it was a serious piece of journalism, from end to end, it's very long. You actually might shave a point or two off your IQ by the time you get to the end of it. Let me give you the summation of it. Number one, Donald Trump is an evil bastard who would like to repeal the First Amendment. And we shouldn't do that. But maybe our First Amendment shouldn't be as broad as it is, because Trump wants to repeal the First, the, the First Amendment to prevent people from criticizing him and, and using fake news to bash him, etc., and silence protesters, even though Donald Trump said nothing like that. And uh, it's, it's, it's the left that's good with their questioning of the First Amendment because maybe some things go too far. And while we have horrible countries like North Korea where people can go to prison for saying the wrong thing, uh, if you come here to the United States and look at ours, we have hate speech and right-wing extremists. And if you look at countries like the Nordic countries, etc., where they said you can't say those insulting, inflammatory, hateful things, they have reduced... Right-wing extremism. And maybe that would be better. I told you it'd make you dumber for reading it. And it gets worse. I mean, the more you read it, the, and it doesn't... Here's, here's the problem with it. There's a very simple position on this. And it's an A or B choice. Your right to say something is an inalienable, distinct human right that exists for all people, regardless of their race, their religion, their sex, orientation, etc. And until such time as that speech is used to actually inflict harm on someone else, it is an absolute right. That's the broad protections of the First Amendment. You can't yell fire in a clouded theater when there's not a theater. If you actually have the ability and you know how you have the ability to incite violence against innocents, you can't use your freedom of speech to incite violence against innocents. In other words, if I knew I could get you guys to go burn a building down by saying it, I could be prosecuted for saying it encouraging you to do it. Right? But if I made some off the comment off the cuff comment that no reasonable sane person would take is go burn a building down and one of you was a flipping nut job and went and burned down a building, you can't come after me for that. This is the freedom of speech. It's a very simple position. It either does or doesn't exist. Well, when you're a leftist and you don't like what the right's saying, but you still want protection to say what you want to say, you end up with this disjointed, wobbly, back-and-forth, incoherent, pablum-spewing bullshit. Okay? You do. Because you have not taken a position. Because what's the other position? The right to speak freely is not a true right and not protected. You should not be able to say things that upset other people. You should not be able to say things that offend other people. You should not be able to say the things that the majority of people don't want to hear. That's the actual other position. That's it. You pick one. And this is the lukewarm positions that people get in, that they see as a middle road. That's not a middle road. That's not a compromise position. That is an inconsistent rea with reality position. And you can see what happens in countries 
without the broad protections of the First Amendment. When we have a guy in freaking Scotland right now, I can't remember his name, McDank or something like that, going to jail for a freaking off-color joke. Literally going to jail for an off-color joke. You can go to jail in Canada for saying bad things about people of a particular race. Not, we should go round up this particular group of people and kill them, but simply that you can, you can be prosecuted for saying things that are demonstratively factual about a given group of people in Canada. But I want you to let that sink in. It's not just your opinion. It's demonstrably provable with fact. There are certain races, for instance, that across the averages, they have a higher IQ. And certain races that have a lower IQ. There are countries now where you can be prosecuted for saying that, even though you can point to a scientific study that says, here's the results, because it's offensive. And this is the problem. As soon as you start to, to take any position other that until you harm somebody, you're free to say what you want to do, and to do what you want to do, frankly. As soon as you do that, you go into subjectivity. Well, what's offensive to you might not be offensive to me, and what's offensive to me might not be offensive to you. And it's amazing how simple things get. When you break down morality to the simplistic statement of don't hurt people and don't steal their stuff. Now, if you're hurt emotionally because you don't like what I had to say, don't listen to me. Don't listen to me. That's that's not you're not a victim because you because well he said that he thought women were not as logical as men. Frankly, I don't think women are as logical as men. I know many of you women may be angry with me, but I've had many in-depth conversations with fairly logical women or very logical women who eventually will concede you're absolutely right. As an average, as an aggregate average, women are less logical thinking than men and men are less emotional than women and sometimes it's better to be logical and sometimes it's better to be emotional depending on what you're doing gee it's almost like there's a balance that we both fill a role in the world and doing crazy shit like raising children or something but do you understand there are places where now you could be possibly fined for saying that men are inherently more logical than women what if I said women are inherently more logical than men I don't believe I can prove that, but is that offensive to men? Oh, men aren't allowed to be afraid because of patriarchy. This is, it all goes to shit as soon as you do this. You don't have to agree with what somebody says. You don't have to like it to defend their right to say it. And then it becomes dramatically civil. This is why I always took the position I did on stupid shit like, so-and-so won't stand for the national anthem. Who the hell cares? So What? If you think it's important to stand for the national anthem, get up off your ass when you're sitting on your couch at home. Oh, well, uh, 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 I do. Yeah, maybe you do. But I think a lot of people that bitch don't. If it's important when you're in the stadium, being used as a pawn by, by our government, who made a deal with the NFL people to bring players out on the field before the anthem just so they could be seen standing, that it's important for you to do too. It's more important for you to do because you believe in it. This is, it's simple, you know? Somebody can come out and say something I completely disagree with. Somebody comes out and says, you know what? I don't like gay people. I'm thinking, you know what? I don't like most people, to be honest with you. 
But I'm not going to generalize and say I don't like gay people. But you could say that. If I know somebody that's gay that's upset by it, I'll say, get over your gay self. I like you, if I like them, if they're a friend of mine, right? I like you. You don't need them to like you. Who cares why he doesn't like you? You know, there's a lot of people I don't like because they're stupid. Oh, wait, that's offensive too now, isn't it? Gee, can't say they're stupid because that's offensive. You see how this works? There's just, it's just nonsense. There's a reason that right in our founding document, the first time they amended it, understand, don't even just see it as the Bill of Rights. All of our founders got together and said, hey, you know what? There's some things that we didn't quite get clear enough in this document. We need to make sure it's fully understood by future government things they can't do. And what was the first thing they did? Hey, when people have shit to say, they're allowed to say it. Shut your ass and let them say it until they hurt somebody. And that's, to me... Like, if you, if you gave me the power to rewrite the amendments, I might take a little time and think about it and get a little bit more eloquent than that. But it might be, it might be that direct. Government will not screw with the ability of people to speak, say, write, or communicate in any way whatsoever what their opinions are or debate facts or report information in any way, shape, or form ever infinity unless said action has a direct result of physical harm on another human being. And a second amendment would say, hey, everybody can own all the guns they want, dumbasses, do you get it now? Right? I mean, I, maybe we should rewrite them, I don't know. But you know what? What I'm saying right now in some countries could get me in trouble. Well, we don't have these dramatically broad protections. This is lunacy of the left. Now, those of you that are new might be thinking this guy is on board, is a conservative right-winger. I am not right-wing. I see lunacy in the conservative positions and in the liberal positions, in different subjects and in different ways. But this is the lunacy of the left. What The lunacy of the left and the inconsistency of the left and why I generally have more respect for the positions of the right even when I disagree with them is the right position is in not always but in general quite consistent. It's in general quite consistent. If that rule is going to apply to me, it should apply to the other side. And if that rule is not going to apply to the other side, it shouldn't apply to me and vice versa. The left... The lunacy there is we want the rules to apply to the people who don't do the things the way that we would like them done. And the problem with that position is you won't always be in charge. That's why we enshrine these things as an eight human rights, not granted by government, but recognized as inherent to the human condition, and therefore government is not allowed to interfere with them. Go ahead and read the article if you want to. You know, if you don't value your IQ, please read what this pablum spewing moron had to say. I have a link to the article. Hopefully it won't make the IQ of my blog go down. Yes, it is that bad. Let's do some other things so my face doesn't hurt, right? Let's talk about some things that are not political here for a moment. How about this question from Nathan? Actually, three quick questions. And, you know, even though it's three quick questions, and he did, or three questions, he did manage to do it on point, on target, and very specific. Good for you, Nate, and that's why I'm going to give you answers to all your questions. Number one, do you prefer to drink meat cold or at room temperature? It depends. 
I know there's times, I've heard people tell me, there's times I just want to reach through the microphone, slap you, Jack, with it depends. But it does depend. Um, do you prefer to drink your wine colder at room temperature? Is it red wine with a steak, like a Cabernet? I don't want that chilled in a refrigerator. Is it a Chardonnay? I kind of like that, especially with a salad. I'd like it very chilled, please. Um, with meat, it's not so dramatic that way. Um, I prefer to drink most meats at least chilled, maybe not necessarily cold. So what I mean by that is I would keep the mead uh, at room temperature. And then maybe if I was going to drink uh, some mead that night, I'd put the bottle in the refrigerator uh, for maybe an hour so that it brings it down in temperature, but not down to like 33, 34 degrees. That chilling often will make, to me anyway, the experience of that meat more uh, pleasurable. However, as it gets warmer, a lot of times a lot of fruitiness and nuances, uh, yeast characteristics and things like that come out at a higher level. So it's about finding a balance. I personally think kind of the perfect temperature is somewhere between 40 and 50 degrees to up to as high as 55 degrees, somewhere in that 15-degree gradient. And it's a really cool thing to do, especially if you become a mead maker yourself, to come up with a mead and then determine well, what is the optimum temperature to serve this mead at. And I don't think you need to get down to like one-degree increments, but try it at room temperature. Make tasting notes. Put a little bit in a glass, throw a thermometer in it. Take it down to 55 degrees. Taste it. Make tasting notes again. Put it back in the refrigerator. Let it go down to 50 degrees. Taste it again. Make tasting notes. Bring it down to 45 degrees. Make tasting notes. Bring it down to 40 degrees. Make tasting notes. Leave it in there until it's as cold as any liquid in your refrigerator, which will generally be somewhere between 34 and 38 degrees. Taste it then. Make tasting notes. And ask yourself, where do I prefer this individual mead? Should you do that with all your meads? Probably not. Probably after you start making mead, you'll settle in on a good half dozen to 12 meads that you make consistently and regularly that are your meads. And if two are very similar and you've already trialed that with one, you'll probably start there and at least do less testing. But realize this is not like an entire bottle to make this determination. Pour a small glass and just have a sip and determine for yourself, where does this mead work best for me? Um, I really like mead when it's about like 55 degrees outside and you set the bottle out in the shade for a little while and get that kind of a chill to it, but not cold, if that makes sense. Most of my meads kind of work really good in that 50-degree range. But it's another side-by-side -side variable that you can have fun and make it more than just getting you know knocked on your ass by what the Vikings drank. Next, when you rack to your secondary, do you ever add more yeast? No, absolutely not. And I'll tell you why. When you uh, rack to a secondary, what that means is we're going to move it from one fermentation vessel into another and leave stuff behind, generally uh, yeast residue and things like that. Your yeast population is really, really high at that point. It's certainly higher than it was when you first fermented it, even though I know there's a lot of yeast layer down there at the bottom, and that stuff can actually have something pitched on top of it and do another great job of fermentation. But the suspended yeast in there, when you go to a secondary, is still really, really high. If you do my trick, which is I want to do a three-pound-a-gallon mead, so I put three pounds to like, you know, uh, one about three-quarters of a gallon of must, 
uh, or wort, depending on what you want to call it. I would refer to it as must because I see it much more like a wine than a beer. Uh, then when I bring it over, I add water to it. When I add that water to it, uh, and I use filtered water out of my Berkey water filter when I do this, either that or bottled water. When I add that water, I top that fermenter up to the top. A lot of people tell you not to do this. I'm just going to tell you I like what it does for the meat. Um, at that point, you've reduced the alcohol by volume in that meat by a little bit because you've diluted it. Dilution is a solution, right? Well, when you do that, any additional fermentation that needs to happen, it's now easier for that yeast to tolerate that alcohol by volume level, which might be quite high by the time that we do that. So I, I don't do that. What you can do is add more food. If you want to push your alcohol higher, you, know, you could add another cup of honey or something like that and do a honey water addition there and increase it. Of course, then you're really going to kick off fermentation. Again, you're probably going to have to rack to a tertiary. So since the yeast blends that I use do well up to about 14 to 17% alcohol, and I'm generally making a 13 to 14% mead, um, I just don't see the need to do that to myself and then prolong the experience. Why not go ahead and get the main part of the fermentation done in the primary where I feel with quick meads and small batch meads it belongs. Next, when adding fruit to meads, is two cups your go-to? Thanks, Nathan, MSB member. Yeah, kind of, sort of, maybe, yeah, depending on the fruit. But if all things are equal, yeah. Now, I will say this. There's times when the amount of something I use is the amount that I have that's reasonably available for what I'm doing. What do I mean by that? You know, I, I went out to my, uh, my, my Asian pear tree, and there's two beautifully ripe Asian pears on there, and I have some ginger in the house, and I say to myself, self, you know what? It'd be a good day to make some Asian pear mead with some ginger in it. And I have two pears. Guess how many pears are going in the gallon? Two. When I cut them up, if it's not quite two cups, eh. What if I cut them up and it's like three or four cups? And, you know, three or four cups of cut up pear, well, it's probably about two cups if we cut it small enough that it actually compacted the way something like, let's say, elderberry does. So elderberries are really strong, so I might use a cup and a half of them. It's all, it's all off the cuff. Right? It's all off the cuff. It's all, I just look at it. And, and give yourself that freedom. But do record it. I think it's more important to record it than worry about it. So if you use, you don't even have to measure it. What did it come from? If you go out and pick some persimmons, and let's say they're bigger persimmons, like commercial persimmons, and use three persimmons to the gallon, and their average size, then in your notes put three average size persimmons. And then when you taste it, say, I would like a little more persimmon, use four next time. right? Or if you actually, let's say somebody gave you or you made up some persimmon puree and you did measure it and you tried two and a half cups, write that down. Don't, don't get bogged down. It's going to be too much. It's going to be too little. The truth is you don't know what the hell it's going to be. Your honey, your yeast, your technique, your water, your fruit, All of these things will have varying impacts on your final product. So go with your gut, taste, and adapt. And that's why I love small batch meat. Because with small batch meat, I'm not into it you know, for 15 pounds of honey. I'm into it for three. And except for that shitty watermelon meat I made one time, every batch of meat I've ever made has been like, I can drink that. That's okay. 
Maybe it'll get better with age. Maybe I shouldn't do it that way again. Maybe I should do it that way but add or subtract something. But I've never made a mead like, holy crap, that's terrible, except for that watermelon mead. Um, and, and like, oh, gee, I wasted it. I've never felt that way. I've always felt like this is a drinkable product. And, and it's why, because I think mead is actually very, very forgiving uh, when it comes to doing things like that. Uh, Nick has a question that's very similar Uh, and it's because I guess Nick heard the recent show on small batch mead making where I left things like ciders and wines out and not the original uh, show I did several years ago, which was small batch ciders, wines, and meads. So I'll find that show and put it in the show notes for you today, Nick. But here's this question. Have you done similar small batches with cider like you do mead? And do you use the same yeast combo for cider? Details, I love your show on small batch mead making, which spurred me to actually make some fermented goodness. Getting one-gallon containers of apple juice from Costco sounded great to me, but I'm not sure I want five whole gallons of hard apple cider, at least not one that I haven't tried before. And so I'm planning to make a couple small batches of cider, fairly basic to begin with, before I get to making mead. Essentially by pouring in some sugar, yeast, and Furmax directly to the container, putting an airlock on. I'm okay with making basic cider first, but I'm wondering if you've added anything particularly delicious to apple cider in the past that I could look at for doing future batches. Thanks for all you do, Nick. Okay, Nick, uh, the answer is yes. It's not my favorite thing to do, though, as far as the apple ciders. And the reason is I really, really, really like my cider carbonated. I'm going to tell you how you can make your cider carbonated. It's, it, it's not hard, okay, but I really like my cider carbonated. And as a guy with a giant kegerator where I can take five gallons of cider and just throw it in my keg and uh, put it in my kegerator and turn the pressure on, And then I can have fermented uh, carbonated cider, five gallons at a go. And it's really easy to do. I don't generally like to sit around priming sugar to make four to five bottles of cider or more, I guess, depending on the size of the bottle you make your cider with. So to me, anything I'm going to carbonate in general, I, I kind of want to put in that kegerator, including some of my, what you call a session mead or small meads where you use a lot less honey Uh, like I did a raspberry ginger one year for one of the workshops, which was probably a mistake to tell a whole bunch of TS peers it was a session mead of lower alcohol content because apparently uh, when you still say, but we're still talking 7.5%, doesn't register with people. You can't drink it like Miller Lite. And uh, we had a whole bunch of drunk raspberry smelling TS peers. Um, but you can do it. I just think most people will find if they make a straight cider from like treetop apple juice or something like that, and they put it in a bottle and they drink it later, it's flat, it's going to kind of taste not so good. Um, the apple juice that we buy, plain old apple juice from Concentrate, actually makes a pretty damn good cider, but without the carbonation in it, a lot of the flavor in it goes, it, it, I don't mean flat the same way as in not bubbled, but it lays flat. It doesn't come forward. It's really an interesting thing you can do with meads too. You know, uh, make up a small batch of mead and bottle half of it carbonated and half of it still tasted side by side. You'll find that the carbonated version has a fruitier taste to it. And the fruit might be in both of them, but the carbonation makes us more aware of it. This is one of my little secrets to margaritas where I'll add a little bit of sparkling water, like Perrier or something like that, or right out of my keg. I just fill up a keg with water and I have sparkling water on hand all the time. That is a biochemical trick that I learned from Rob Wolf. 
if you use a, a hard liquor and you use a carbonation, it actually causes the body to observe the uh, alcohol a little faster. This is not so we can be like a bunch of frat boys and get plastered really quick, but what goes in quicker comes out quicker. The body gets rid of it quicker. It reduces hangovers and the ill effects of alcohol. That doesn't mean you can go drink yourself stupid. That means... If you drink about the same amount and that amount's reasonable, you'll probably have left less after effect with a little bit of carbonation. But when I tried that, I was like, hey, this is a totally different characteristic to taste here. And that's when I really started noticing it in my meads with my still versus my sparkling meads. But I noticed most meads have enough character and punch that they're actually better still. It's your, your lighter meads that do well. Your meads that are just kissed with blackberry or just kissed with blueberry or something like that versus the ones that are full-on, you know, heavy uh, uh, melamals, right? Those, like, you don't really need to carbonate them. The apple cider, I, I'm not, I'm telling you, having drank some really higher-end commercial still ciders, I just think apple needs that carbonation punch to really shine. So, you end up having to carbonate it. So the best way that you can do that, in my opinion, is to put about a full tablespoon of sugar into the bottle and bottle your apple cider in old wine bottles. Uh, so your 750 milliliter bottles. Um, if you do the same trick with the apple juice, take some of it, put it aside, okay? And top up your secondary with you'll get close to a full gallon out of your apple cider. You need to leave a little bit of headspace because it will kick off in your secondary again. You're bringing more more sugar to the party. The other thing you can do is you you take your apple cider aside, like you take a pint jar, clean, sterile, sanitized pint jar, hot water. Pour your apple juice into it. Take about a pint out, not even a pint. I'm sorry, a half pint jar, like a jelly jar. That should give you enough headspace in your apple juice jar. Uh, in fact, you probably are actually going to take a pint because you're going to add the sugar. Right, So take a pint. And then when the fermentation slows, open up that jar, keep it in the refrigerator, add about a half of that pint back, and make sure it's not going to get too crazy on you over the next day, and add the rest of it back. Get it as close to topped off as you can. You might have to drink some actual apple juice because you, the sugar displaces some of the space in there. And if you do that, then what you're going to end up with is you know a good full gallon And about a tablespoon to a 750 milliliter wine bottle works. Okay, well, I don't want to carbonate and cork because it can, it's, not, it's fine. You can do that. You wire the cork down if you want to. But what I'm going to suggest is find yourself a source of wine bottles with screw tops. People go, oh, screw top wine. Eh. No, no, don't be a prude for things you don't understand. Some of the best wines in the world right now coming out of New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa. And now finally California is getting on board with this, have screw tops. Screw top, metal uh, tops with a plastic bushing, are superior to corks for making wine. Why? Because that's why. Just accept it. No, seriously, it's because if you think about when you go to a restaurant and you order a fine bottle of wine, What, the, what does the waiter do? Comes over. He shows you the bottle. Before we're going to open this $75 bottle of wine you could have bought for $20 bucks at the liquor store, I want to make sure you're not going to tell me it's the wrong wine. So he shows you the bottle. You look at it. It's blah, 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 blah. Okay, that's what I ordered. 86. Yes. Uh, proceed, please. And then he will open the bottle. And he will put the cork in front of you. If he does it 
by the book. He will do this before he pours some. He will put the cork in front of you. And dummies will grab the cork and sniff it. That's not what you're supposed to do. Here's your etiquette lesson of the day. You look at the cork. And you look at it to see that what has not happened, not what has happened. If there's very little staining of the cork, that's fine. If there's lots of staining of the cork, that's fine. What you want to see is that the staining has not gone all the way through the cork, thereby meaning that the wine itself has been exposed to oxygen, allowing for oxidation of the wine, and ruining your $70 bottle that you could bought for $20 at the liquor store. So after you inspect the cork, he pours a little bit, you swirl it around to pretend like you know what you're doing, you sniff its aroma, and you taste it, and you wave your hand thusly, and he gives wine to the rest of the table. That's why We do that because the cork can fail. If you order a nice bottle of, let's say, Savion Blanc from South Africa, and they're making some fantastic ones, yes, a survivalist knows this, I am an upscale survivalist, um, he will come with the bottle with the metal cap, and if he lays that cap down in front of you, he's an idiot, he needs a backhanded to be sent away, Gaston, get me somebody else who knows how to handle wine, you are an idiot, Gaston, right? Seriously, you don't inspect the cap, because it doesn't freaking fail. You look at the bottle, they put it, so... Good wines come without a cork. The interesting thing is, these wines with these metal caps with a little plastic bushing in them, if you screw that on a cider or a mead that you have primed with priming sugar, it will hold, it will develop carbonation, and you won't have to screw around with a corker. And that means you won't need a cork screw to get it open. Your cork will not go bad because if you're using a cork, you should be storing the wine on its side. So that it's like, see all this crap you get away with? You don't have to worry about that anymore. And you don't want to store your carbonated meads on their side because sediment. And now the sediment's there. You see how it all goes wrong. But the screw top works. You can also put them in any kind of a bottle you can use with a standard beer capper. But if you can find somebody that you know that works in a bar, where they serve or a restaurant where they serve wines that are good wines that come in good screw top wine bottles those are fantastic and those bottles are beautiful absolutely beautiful for your sparkling ciders so that's how I would do your ciders it's a long answer to a short question but it's because I saw an opportunity for several cool things to be brought up so next and final question comes from Matt Matt says hey Jack remember several years ago you talked about a good all round ground cover I went on the website to search for it, having trouble finding a mix you talked about. If you have a moment, would you mind giving me a hand? You talked about a mix of grasses, legumes, a couple other things. Thanks for your time, Matt. Well, Matt, good name. Named after my son, right? Uh, anyway, um, I don't see people come and smell I want a recipe, basically, for a cover crop. Okay, You don't need one. You need to figure out what grows in your area and what's available to you and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, there are a lot of things that are really good to help restore the ground in success into perennials, but they go away and leave the ground bare if we're not prepared. These are things like cowpea, uh, buckwheat, white kaya soda, etc. They kind of choke everything else out. They compete with everything, but they're annuals, so when they die, there's nothing there ready to come around for round two. You end up with bare ground. And they can still be used in sparser amounts along with perennials. That's a good way to do it. But you have to look at what's available, what are you trying to accomplish. So if you're trying to establish pasture, you want to focus mostly on perennial grasses and perennial browse. Clovers and subclovers, um, things like that. 
with a, a healthy little addition of like good, deep tap-rooted annuals like daikon radish, which will, in most climates, self-recede. But it, it's a lot like I explained cooking. Like if you focus on, well, Jack used exactly this and that. And this. Guys, I buy like everything I can get. And when I go to make a mix, those of you who have been here to see me do it, I'm just like, eh, you know, it's cold right now. Daikon will germinate, a couple of cups of that. And uh, it's cold vetch is a nitrogen fixer. Okay, some vetch. Uh, and I got this grass mix that I bought. I'll just dump some of that. I don't remember what it is. Triticale, uh, yeah, that's an annual, so I don't want too much of it, so maybe one cup of that. And I just mix it up and throw it out. You know, here's some crimson clover. Nick bought me 50 pounds of it, so I'll throw a couple cups of that in there. Maybe someday some of it will grow. Plantain's a great forage herb, so I'll throw some of the tonic plantain in there. Uh, you know, chicory, it's an, a biannual. It's good for bees. It's good for medicinal use. It's good for culinary use. So I'll throw some – I mean, that's that's it. That's what I do. If I just put in new swales, let's say, for a, I won't be doing it here again. I'm done. But let's say I had a client, and we put in swells, and you got bare dirt. If it's going heading into summer, uh, and we're going to plant trees, I'm probably going to hit it heavy with buckwheat and cowpea. And then I'm going to come up with a fall mix. And I'm going to say, as soon as you see that buckwheat starting to fade, get this down. And drop, chop and drop the buckwheat and cowpea on it. And that mix is going to be a mix of winter stuff, but heavy in the perennials. So, because that's that application. And we're going to plant that with heavy with bushes, trees, shrubs, and vines and let native vegetation come in as well. So, we're just trying to cover that dirt so it doesn't erode until everything has its, and the trees have a chance to get their roots in. We don't want it evaporating off. Uh, so, we're putting a natural mulch that's going to grow on top of the, the, uh, the actual mulch, like the straw that we put down on top of it. If it's a pasture and we're running chickens. Then I'm going to come up with a mix with some perennial glasses and clover is my mainstay with a little bit of some other stuff in there. And when we move the chickens, it's just going to be a very small amount where the chickens just were. And we're going to follow them with it. And we're going to slowly over time improve the pasture. If you live in a climate where things kind of recover quickly, you don't even need to do, do that with improving pasture. I mean, all kinds of stuff just starts to show up over time. Good stuff. It's the chickens or the cattle or whatever you're using to improve it. But small amounts of those seeds tossed out throughout various times of the year. Seeds find their little niches. I'm seeing things pop up now that I know I haven't thrown out for like three years, and I never really saw them grow. You're forming a seed bank in the soil that when the right conditions come up, they will get triggered to germinate. Some seeds get triggered by temperature, uh, moisture content, temperature, soil disturbance, and that disturbance can be loosened or compacted. Some some seeds are really triggered by, you know, an animal goes out, stomps them a little bit further in than they were, and then another animal comes and takes a dump on them six months later, and then it rains and that, that manure melts into the seed, and all of a sudden, boom, a seed that you think would have, You know, it rained plenty of times, but something triggered that seed. And, and all we're doing with these, these types of seed mixes, we're not talking about growing a crop. We're talking about growing a polyculture uh, that's going to be something like a ground cover or, or what have you. Um, they all have different triggers. So that's the approach to take. I don't have, like, go get, you know, five cups of annual ryegrass and two cups of uh, Dutch white clover 
and one cup of taka sub clover and a half a cup of purple vetch and a half a cup of kyasote and a half a cup of trichale wheat and, uh, you know, a quarter cup of chicory. But if you put that together, it would work pretty damn good. And guess what? I just pulled it out of my ass. It's that simple. Don't make it hard. Everybody thinks it's hard. And this is because it's, it's a pet peeve of mine with permaculture, Regen Ag. All, everybody wants to be famous. Everybody wants to be somebody. Everybody wants to invent something. Everybody wants to be known for something. So you have Sepp Holtz, who have a secret seed mix. And everybody's like, tell us what's in it. Talk to nature. Ask the trees. You know, I mean, come on. Just be honest about it. All of these things work. Figure out what you need and apply the appropriate seed to the appropriate ground at the appropriate time and do a little bit extra of this and that. And then, then you're talking to the trees and then nature will tell you what it needs, but give something nature to work, give something to nature for nature to work with. And there's nothing wrong with, I don't know what to do now. And it's the time of year where annual ryegrass will grow. So I'm just going to throw cheap annual ryegrass down there. And then I'm going to figure out what I want. And when I get to the point in time where the annual ryegrass is going to start to die back from heat, I'll just seed right into it and I'll let it die. And when it dies and goes brown on top of it, all this other shit will come through. Or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll help it. I'll roll the ryegrass with a roller or something like that. Or I'll send the birds in or what have you to, uh, to take it down or walk it down. All of these things work. Don't overthink it. Don't feel like there's a special secret that I have or anybody else has to exactly what cover crop to use because anybody that says they do is full of freaking crap. I hope you guys enjoyed today. Uh, I enjoyed being back with you after a week off. I enjoy traveling. I enjoy meeting people. But this is what I enjoy most, doing the show for you guys five days a week, Monday through Friday. We are back, and our regularly scheduled programming has resumed. On that note, if you want to help support this show, there's a couple ways to do it. One is to consider joining the MSB. You can go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. Uh, and if you do that, you'll be supporting us at about 18.3 cents an episode, and you'll get a whole bunch of discounts. The other way is to just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to shop online, just go to tspaz.com first. Check out the stuff we have there. Use the main links, and as long as you're shopping at T-SPAS, you help support the Survival Podcast, the work that we do. You'll find all of my reviews there, and usually they're done for products on Amazon. Today's item of the day is Sweet Drops Liquid Stevia. Um, sometimes people say, like, you know, are you really giving out preparedness product or preparedness advice or survival topics? Let me give you why this is actually a huge survival topic. Um, We're talking about lifestyle disease here instead of lifestyle design and how sugar affects us. Here's a low-end breakdown of a typical American's consumption of sugar. Four cups of coffee or tea a day with one teaspoon of sugar per cup uh, and four soft drinks or similar at 12 ounces each day. We'll go low and say that they have about two teaspoons of sugar per drink. Well, 12 teaspoons a day is 84 teaspoons a week. This is for the coffee and tea where you sell sweet. And that's almost 310 carbohydrates a week in pure sugar form. That jacks up your insulin resistance, and that's not good for your health. Okay? Um, from a caloric standpoint, drinking those four cups of coffee or tea a day, sweeten the way most people sweeten them with sugar, is 1,344 calories. 
the average American should be on a diet of 1,500 to 2,000 calories a day. So every week, that's almost an extra day of eating, 52 weeks a year. Let's take two off for rounding down, right? And you've eaten 50 extra days worth of food a year is the way to see that. Now, if we get rid of the tea and go to Coca-Cola, we know exactly what we're dealing with because it's on the label. So you, all your sodas are typically the same, ginger ale, Coke, Pepsi, whatever, Dr. Pepper, you name it. And a lot of people drink four of those a day. Um, that is 1,092 grams of carbohydrate a week. 1,092. If you cut that down to just two a day, you're still at 546 grams of carbohydrate a week. It's hard to even think about what that does to insulin resistance and the propensity for type 2 diabetes in America. Calorically, two Cokes a day is 2,000 calories a week. A lot of people drink four soft drinks a day, no problem. 8,000 calories a week. That's four full days of eating added to every week just from sodas with no nutrition at all. I know many of you are thinking, I don't do that. What about your kids? Kids seem to be able to eat this crap, uh, and they can do it into adulthood a lot of times without gaining weight. But the insulin resistance damage is being done along the way, and they end up with problems. And then like you, they say, hey, all of a sudden I'm starting to put some weight on what I didn't expect to in the past. So, you know, give this stuff a try. Check out my strawberry lime made I make with your kids will like that. This really can change your health for the better just by cutting the sugar and the excess calories that are devoid of nutrition, liquid stevia. Check it out. I will say this. I don't like it in coffee. I drink coffee with no sweetener at all in it. But it's really good in tea and a lot of other things. And since it's liquid, it actually will freaking dissolve in cold uh, drinks, including things like iced tea. Uh, so if you make unsweetened iced tea and you want to sweeten it up a little bit, for instance, you know, put a drop in your glass and taste it because it can be too sweet really fast if you use too much. Figure out what your amount is, use it, save your life with stevia. I, I really mean that. You know, uh, famous TV chef Jamie Oliver from the UK came to the United States and he went to a place called Huntington, West Virginia. I think it's, that's what it was called, the fattest city in America. And this uh, local DJ really didn't like that he was there and what he was doing. He thought it was giving the city a bad image and stuff. So he talked this DJ into coming and meeting with him and learning a little bit about the obesity uh, epidemic in America. And what, what finally got through to this DJ, he took him to a funeral home. And he showed him the size of some of the caskets that we're having to make now just to bury somebody in. And, and, and it hit the guy hard. And it should. We're killing ourselves. Sugar's one way. That's why I recommend this product so highly. But you can see everything I recommend broken down by categories at tspaz.com, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. It is uh, by a band called Simple Plan, and I, I've never heard of this band. They have kind of that, I don't know if the right term is like skater sound, but like that, you know, that late 90s, mid-90s kind of skater band sound, though they actually are a little bit later in the game than that. I think this song's from like uh, 2004 or something like that. And it's called Perfect. And this song was written by the lead singer and one other band member because the lead singer was never accepted by his father. He wanted to go into music, and his father thought that was a bad idea, and they had bad feelings of each other, and it was a way of, of trying to tell his father, I know I'm not perfect, but you know I am a success now, and we can't go back and fix everything that went wrong, but I wish things could be better, because apparently his dad still wasn't on board with this whole music thing. And, uh, you know, 
It's in stark contrast with another guy that I've played on the air quite a bit for you, Dan Fogelberg, whose, whose father really didn't want him to go into music the way he w went. His father actually was a band director, and uh, Dan wanted to go out to Hollywood and get a record contract and not finish college. But when he, when he finally said to his dad, listen, this is what I got to do, his old man said, then go with my blessing. And it's a stark contrast, and it, it, it's why this song's important. If you're a parent, you have certain things you want for your kids. But let me tell you the things you should want the most. You should want that they be happy. That they be happy. That they be able to pursue their dreams their way. And that they don't come to harm. And as long as those boxes are ticked, then support them. If they're doing self-destructive behavior, if they're using hardcore drugs or something like that, if they're involved in something that's actually dangerous or criminal activity, they're going to end up in prison, at a hospital, or at a funeral home, then you, you, you intervene where and as you can. You don't have to endorse everything that they do, but understand this, they are not you. When it comes to what you wanted for them, you had that chance for yourself. It's what you want for you. And so many parents say, well, I screwed this up and that up and this up, and I want my kid to have these things that I would have if I went back and didn't screw up. Maybe your kid doesn't want those things. Your job as a parent is to work yourself out of a job. And I know people that are quite close to me that have pretty strained relations with their parents because their parents don't approve of their choices, even though those people have made some really good choices that are really successful. This kid is a very successful musician that wrote this song. This is some guy that's still out, you know, playing dive joints for a hundred bucks a night. They're very successful. And see, the problem becomes when you say this is the wrong course, pride gets in the way then, even when they do become successful. And then what happens is the pride prevents the reconciliation, or the pride actually leads to jealousy. I know uh, someone very close to me whose parents are flatly jealous of their success. That's why they are so upset about their decision and what they're doing in their life. They're really angry that they don't have that level of success in their own life. And the, the kid went and did it in a way they don't approve of. That's what this song's about. I'm telling you, when it comes to your kids, want that they be safe, want that they be happy, most of the time, not all the time, because being happy all the time leads to misery. Want that they be happy most of the time. Want that they be safe. Want that they have the basic resources they need to pursue their dreams and the freedom to do so. Those are the things you want for them. If you're really concerned with them having with what they want for themselves. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. Times get tough, or even if they don't.
it's just too late And we can't go back I'm sorry, can't be perfect I try not to think about the pain I feel inside Did you know you used to be my hero All the days you spent with me Now seem so far away And it feels like you don't care anymore And now I try hard to make it I just wanna make you proud It's just too late And we can't go back